0: Richard.
1: Hello Lizzie.
0: Thank you for joining me. Um, We're meeting today to discuss um, a webinar that we did on 27th of January for local authorities, uh, which was on best value and overage. I think today we're just going to focus on some cases around best value. Um, Do you want to start by refreshing our memories on the background of this kind of area of law?
1: Yeah, it's obviously something that that, uh, sort of would be of interest to local governments. I mean, the background is that everybody aspires to get the best value when when you uh, sell land. But for local authorities, well, they've got fiduciary duties to the the council taxpayer anyway, and they are supposed to achieve best value. But it's also covered by um, Section 123 of the the Local Government Act of 1972, which basically says that uh, local authorities are able to Dispose of land, you know, however they like, basically leases, freehold, assignment of leases, easements. Um, But uh, they're supposed to, uh, with one exception, achieve the best price, the best consideration, reasonably obtainable. The exception is uh, granting leases of seven or less years in duration. Uh, I suppose it's sort of worth uh, remembering that uh, if they want to sell at an undervalue. Well, there is something called the general disposal consent it's it's slightly different this area not not for our purposes but slightly different between england and wales but uh, in terms of the valuation side of things but uh, the law is pretty much the same but uh, they can dispose of at an undervalue of up to two million pounds without getting a specific consent uh, if it's 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 to um, promote or improve the Uh, economic, social, environmental, well-being of the locality of the area. Uh, Otherwise, they're supposed to get specific consent from the uh, the Minister. Uh, And that's some of the background to it.
0: Okay, thank you. Shall we move on to the first case you want to look at?
1: Yes, why not?
0: So the first one was the Crown on the application of London Jewish Girls High and London Borough of Barnet, and this was a judicial review from 2013.
1: Yeah, shall I tell you some of the background, the, the area and things?
0: Yes, please. Uh,
1: it's, uh, it, was, um, it was a London uh, Jewish Girls High, it's, a, it's quite a famous school actually, has a uh Jewish school uh, in Barnet, and uh, they were looking for alternative sites. They, they actually occupied at uh, the time the, the Hendon Synagogue. Uh, But they were expected to have to vacate this uh, as premises by August 2013, and they were looking for another site. And one site they um, chose as potential to build the girls' school on was the the site of the former Hendon Football Club, that well-known high-profile football club we're all familiar with, who actually uh, shut down some years previously. the football club had uh, got a 99 year lease from the council uh, from October 19, 1997, uh, but I say, they closed down. They're actually owned originally uh, by a, a company called Arbiter, who had already put in, in 2004, uh, planning applications and got outline planning permission for the care home on the site of the, the football ground. And also um, three blocks of flats, so some years later, no one seems to be quite sure, but around about 2008, um, a, a developer called Montclair Developments um, uh, acquired all the shares in Hendon Football Club. And obviously they were intending to, to develop it. Um, the girls' school had, uh, in 2010-11, tried to take an assignment of the lease, but for various reasons this fell through. And so the two of them, Montclair uh, and... Um, the Jewish uh, Girls High uh, were competing uh, to purchase from the council, the Freehold.
0: So so what happened next then?
1: Um, Well, it's all about whether you were getting the best consideration or not. Uh, And uh, quite importantly, taking into account overage originally, the the developers um, offered uh, something in the region of four million pounds for this site but then realized there would be question marks of the number of units, so residential units, they'd be able to build. So inevitably they reduced the, the figure and offered overage. So they're going to offer 2.8 million pounds plus overage, uh, obviously dependent on the number of additional uh, units they, they, they build and sell. Um, the girls' school offered uh, 3.5 million, 700,000 pounds more uh uh unconditional that would uh, you know sort of um, be payable i think they were going to pay a five percent deposit within 60 days of uh, acceptance of this offer and uh but they nevertheless uh, the, the local authority uh, accepted the the lower offer plus overage and uh that's what gave rise to the the judicial review have you sold at the best consideration
0: what happened during the review
1: well, the court, said, like a lot of these cases, it's very much valuation based, but the court accepted uh, the arguments of um, Montclair developments that uh, overage is something that will crystallise in the future. They also said you could take into account other factors, such as the fact that uh, if uh, the residential development went ahead, they would be looking at Section 106 payments and also community infrastructure levy payments, which would uh, probably total up to about a million pounds. So in those circumstances, uh, it was um, valid. They quoted a few uh, previous cases, most uh, most notably um, a a case involving Middlesbrough or a council in uh, Frost Tree, uh, where they said that you can take into account general sort of commercial factors and the likes, you know, you're being given easements over neighboring land and you're not just limited to the initial purchase price. And also uh, another case, uh, quite a famous 1999 case, um, which I did actually discuss, it was in the notes, Pembroke, Crown on the application, Pembroke and COCA, um, which made it clear that it's gotta be something commercial, monetary value is best value. And that doesn't include social factors. Uh, in that particular case, it didn't include um, the fact that uh, one of the bidders was offering uh, jobs in the locality. That's not a factor you should take into account.
0: Can you ever take into account social factors?
1: Well, yeah, that's, um, that's one of the situations where as long as the undervalue is um, less than £2 million, uh, then they, uh, you know, the fact that you're offering jobs in the locality is to do with the economic, social, environmental well-being of the locality and uh, you could use the general disposal consent uh, or if it was more than two million pounds you'd have to go through specific consent of the relevant minister and that's basically the first one busy
0: thank you so should we move on to the next one we want to look at um estates and salford city council from 2011
1: yeah it's uh, it's another sort of uh discussion of how you achieve best value, this in terms of the advertising process. Um, The the background to this is that um, some years previously, um, Tesco's had acquired a site in Pendleton, which is towards the centre of Salford. Um, site and access to it was really the only way of accessing any additional land that they were interested in buying. Um, the uh, other side of uh, Pendleton Way, which is a major dual carriage where it splits the you know, Salford Estates off from the, 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 the other piece of land. So there's no real access from one to the other. Um, but uh, there is, well, Salford Estates uh, have this land. It was actually a holding company of Salford Estates Praxis Holdings that had acquired this land in 2010. And there was the Salford Shopping Centre Sounds perfect and always. uh, 9.44 acres of moderate size by the sounds of it, shopping centre. The local authority, the city council, wanted to sell a piece of land uh, to Tesco uh, on the other side of the carriageway. And remember that Tesco has already owned a strip of this land, and they're going to build a large supermarket plus petrol station, car park, and the likes on this land. Um, but they entered into an exclusivity agreement, um, they didn't sort of market it on the open market or ask for tenders, um, and uh, soon afterwards entered into a conditional contract in, in relation to this land, and uh, that uh, got, got planning permission later on in that year. Uh, and. Uh, Because they hadn't marketed, Salford Estates argued that uh, you haven't achieved the best consideration, reasonably obtainable, we can set aside this transaction.
0: And what was the decision in this case?
1: Well, they said, as other cases have said, and there was a case a couple of years later in 2015, I remember Land and Durham uh, uh, Council, which said a similar kind of thing, that uh, there's no definite in this area, it doesn't require that you sell in a particular way. You're on the open market, if you can justify otherwise, and you have to justify otherwise. Uh, I think the council did themselves a lot of favours by employing independent valuers and likes to say all you know, that degree of independence. But the independent uh, valuers, it's basically pointed out that, you know, the only feasible person to develop this site would have been Tesco's. Uh, as they were the ones who had the access way to the site. It would, you know, couldn't to all intents be accessed any other way. Uh, and in those circumstances, you could justify uh the exclusivity agreement and just dealing with Tesco's. And it wasn't set aside.
0: Anything more on that one
1: or shall we move on? Um, you know, again, these cases are quite sort of um convoluted. I sort of limited them. Like they did try to argue various other things besides but by the time of the full court hearing they'd uh uh, Salford so Estates have dropped a lot of their arguments. Uh, very specialist stuff. I mean, it's moved on a bit with uh, Brexit and everything, but they they argue that there's state aid involved. Currently, at least the, the EU state aid provisions—they're called subsidies now—but they still apply. There's a subsidy control bill, which might change things going through Parliament. But uh, you could try to argue those kind of things. But they dropped to they say that in public contract regulations and so on got to be very very com- complicated indeed but uh, you don't have to actually go through um and sort of uh, testing the market and open market sale if you uh, can justify not doing so
0: okay thank you um should we move on to our last case which is the whitstable society in canterbury city council another judicial review this time in 2017
1: yeah this is i mean i have to say that it's a Pretty long-winded case this one. Uh, Going well, the judge seemed to to want to go into the past history of the whole of Whitstable at times in Kent. But it's it was a roller skating rink on the seafront between Sea Street and the sea wall in Whitstable. Then there would be the sea wall, and then there's a beach called um, Reed's Beach, I think. Never been to Whitstable, so I couldn't describe it too well to you, but I'm sure one day
0: I will do. It's very beautiful. I know it quite well.
1: Yeah? Oh, yeah, nice. I do you? Oh, do you know the Oval Chalet? What is it? I don't know. It was, well, it's, I think it's developed now, but it was a roller skating rink, um, which uh, was called the Oval Chalet. There was and um, uh, a tea rooms. It seems to have been there since uh, 1914. And uh, I say it was used for roller skating between the walls and the likes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, next door was originally in the same title. There was um, there was an indoor roller skating rink as well. But back in 1944, the two were split off one from another, and uh, the oval uh, chalet we came together with the tea rooms quite separate. Uh, it was originally in private ownership, but uh, it was transferred to. Canterbury's uh, predecessor, who, are, uh, who were Wichester the District Council, This is back in on May the 1st 1945, and what then happened is they seem to have some leases of tea rooms. Ever since the late 1950s there have been talk about developing this in the neighbouring piece of land, the, what was the indoor roller skating rink, which is something called the Tile Warehouse. Um, well, that seem to come to fruition. Since the early 1960s, there have been series, I think 1961 to be precise, there have been a series of leases of um, this oval chalet to uh, the Whitstable Yacht Club, which you no doubt are a member of, uh, Lizzie. Clearly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but anyway, they, they, um, The Whitstall Yacht Club used this land for storing dinghies and this kind of thing. It was was fenced off, but there was no gate, so people could actually get in. It seems over the years there was evidence that people would walk across this land and kids would use it for BMX biking. Eventually, the Canterbury City Council take over Whitstable Urban District Council, and uh, they uh, wanted to sell this land for a sort of mixed development They didn't want to sell both of them together. If they can sell them both together, they said they can can improve the the visual effect and the likes of the seafront. And the Whitstable Society, a community interest group, took objection to this and uh, put forward all kinds of arguments, quite convoluted arguments on occasion, which bring in a lot of fairly fundamental um, public law and local government law areas.
0: What kind of things were they arguing?
1: Well there was actually five arguments, four of which failed. Um, the first is they tried to claim that this was uh, open space, public open space, uh, based on you know, the locals would use this land. We've got a, another local authority course uh, at the end of February and that we're going to cover amongst other things public open space and that is a very very tricky area. But if it is public open space, you're supposed to advertise before you sell in two consecutive in, uh, in two weeks of consecutive weeks of newspapers in the locality, and also um, you're supposed to listen to any and have consideration of any anything that the local state about the sale of the land. And they haven't done that. Uh, the uh, the court decided that there wasn't it wasn't open space. Um, it wasn't being used as the public as a whole, you know, it was being stored. these dinghies were being stored. And the reason there was no gate on it was there was no need to be a gate on it. You know, the, the dinghies were safe. You know, there were dinghies on the beach down below. The uh, other arguments, which I wouldn't bother too much about, were that uh, the disposal was on ultra virus, um, that they hadn't advertised either. Again, they just you know, transferred to developers without advertising. And uh, they have not followed public sector equality provisions, which is perhaps for another day. All those arguments failed. But the uh, other argument on best value considerations and best consideration under Section 123, subsection 2, the Local Government Act succeeded.
0: Do you want to expand on that a bit?
1: Yeah, I mean, there was uh, the background. It's around 2014-15. Uh There was a resolution by the council to to sell this land to a property developer, uh, which was adopted in December, December 11th, 2014. And there was a conditional contract, a conditional on planning permission entered into on the 21st of January 2015. Um, But uh, the sale was based on a valuation. They'd used, again, a a separate third party value, which was a good idea. Uh, a coupled urban delivery to um, value the property based on various presumptions. But one of the presumptions was that there would have to be a degree of affordable housing, which reduces the price in relation to the development. The valuation was actually eight months old uh, at the time of the sale. And perhaps I'll mention a bit more of that in a minute. In the interim, you know, whilst the valuation was, well, since, since it had been the, the valuation had occurred, uh, there had been a ministerial statement uh, on November the 28th, 2014, uh, it, about support for small-scale developers, custom and self-builders, which basically said if you've got 10 units or less and uh, the area is uh, less than a 1,000 square metres, then uh, you don't need affordable housing. So there was actually no need for affordable housing, which affected the value. And for that reason, they had not sold at best value, they'd sold at an undervalue.
0: What was the final decision and what were the implications of the decision?
1: Well, fortunately for the council, they actually won the case because um, it was decided that the Whitstable Society, they uh, had waited too long to to try and set aside the transaction and, and question it. They would have known at the latest by about July of 2015 what was going on and had sufficient information to bring action. They did nothing until February 2016, and because people would have been prejudiced by the delay, um, the uh, transaction was allowed to stand. Um, I think the major implications is that make sure your valuation is up to date and is including up to date information. Uh, I know for Specific consent, you know, getting the minister's approval. The, the guidance says that the valuation should be no more than six months old, and even if it isn't, you know, is less than six months old. And obviously, you need to take into account changes to ministerial policy and the likes in the interim. So, a bit of a pyrrhic victory for the Whitstable Society. Another victory like this, and we're all done for. <laughs>
0: Thank you everybody for listening and thank you to Richard. We look forward to seeing you in our next episode.